You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This election, a record-setting number of school measures are on the ballot. Requests that altogether are worth $4.4 billion. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine is here to explain why so many districts are asking for money and what they want that money for. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Ryan. First, uh, how many ballot measures are there in all and uh, where does the money go? There are about 62 measures across the state, and there are two different kinds. So we have bond measures. Those pay for buildings and repairs. Mill levy overrides are the ballot measures that raise local property taxes to pay for school programs, materials, and teacher salaries, the school's operations. Okay, so more than 60 requests altogether across the state. Why are there so many? This year? Well, one, it's a presidential race, so there's a higher turnout, and sometimes that can help pass these school funding proposals. But two, many districts realize this is the only way to get back to funding levels they had before the Great Recession. Explain that. First, here in Colorado, districts get about $2,000 per pupil less from the state than than the national average. Then, during the recession, state lawmakers created a cost-cutting mechanism to slash school budgets. It was called the negative factor. That negative factor, does that mean schools are getting less from the state than they're supposed to get? Yes, that shortfall to schools is more than $5 billion now. Some lawmakers called it credit card debt, and it was designed to be paid back to schools. That hasn't happened. And that means a district like Denver got less funding per pupil last year than it did in 2008. So for most districts, the negative factor amounts to a 13 percent cut. Okay, Jenny, let's start with some of the big districts making requests. What's are their uh, d- demands, their, their request to voters. So let's take Denver's half a billion dollar bond request. Why this request? The city's northeast is rapidly expanding. They need to make space for an estimated 2,500 new students. The bond would also pay for upgrades and air conditioning in older schools. Here's school board chair Ann Rowe. So these schools don't have air conditioning, and they get really, really hot. And so we have identified in this package our hottest schools, and we'll be able to provide cooling solutions to actually make them livable. Also right now in Denver's schools, large numbers of students may share one computer, so the bond would buy additional computers. And in Denver, there's a companion measure on the ballot. What is that? It's a mill levy override, and it's asking for $56 million. It would raise taxes about $10 a month on the average home. It would pay for early literacy programs and teacher training. Just 30 percent of third graders are reading at grade level now. Some money would let schools hire psychologists, social workers, and nurses, for which teachers say there's really a desperate need. All right, that's Denver to Jefferson County now, another large district. It's going for half a billion dollars in bonds, partly to relieve overcrowding. Tell us about that. Jeffco school officials say their buildings are crowded because other districts have passed more local property taxes and bonds to keep up with needs. Here's Jeffco Superintendent Dan McMinimi. If we had the same funding in mill levy per student as Denver, we would have $26 million more. If we had the same as Boulder, we would have $71 million more. But opponents say the property tax hike is just too much for small businesses. Jen Butts is with the group Jefferson County Students First. She says there aren't clear enough targets as to how, say, new technology in a building will raise achievement. Whatever it is that you want to put into that building, you should be able to quantify to your target audience 
how that's going to improve the life of their child. Butts is also upset not enough of the tax hike would go to compensating teachers. Let's shift to a district that hasn't had much luck in passing local measures. That's Adams 12 Five Star, which covers Thornton, North Glen, Broomfield and Westminster. Uh, What has happened there? Well, they've added 4,200 students since the last time a bond measure for building repairs passed 12 years ago. And the district has problems in some buildings. On our website, we've posted some pictures of rotting piping and roofs. And what does that overcrowding actually mean in a school? Let's take a school like Rocky Top Middle School. There are four full classes divided by temporary walls in the school library. Another class is held in a hallway. Chelsea Bahana, the school's principal, says the ideal school size would be about 300 students less than they have now. There's a difference, a palpable difference in the hallways of a middle school when there are nearly 1,400 of them passing during a four-minute passing period at different parts of the day. And it is very stressful from a safety and security standpoint. If the bond passes, some of the students from Rocky Top would go to a new K-8 through school. Okay, so that's Adams 12 Five Star. How about some rural districts? I know that you talked with a superintendent in a little district in the Yampa Valley that's in western Colorado. Yes, that's Phil Casper, and his district is asking voters for money to replace the school buses. They travel ten to 14,000 miles a year, often on gravel roads. One bus has 260,000 miles on it. But they're not asking to replace any of the classes like gym, music, and art that they've had to cut. And why is that? In Casper's case, his region relies on ranching and jobs at the coal-fired power plant. He says locals are nervous about the future, and he feels buses are all he can ask for. There's no relief in sight to keep teachers, pay teachers, maintain libraries, maintain arts, maintain band. And it sounds like Phil Casper is getting ready for further challenges. I just, I don't know where we're headed. I mean, there's no, it's hard to be optimistic right now. There is one superintendent I talked to who is working hard to be optimistic. Leslie Lindauer is the superintendent of the Cripple Creek Victor School District. It lost $55 million in property tax revenue when the region's gold mine changed hands. We withdrew basically $500,000 out of our reserve, which is 40% of our reserves. So I still want to know why he's optimistic, but I take it the district has to go to the ballot this year? Yes, uh, it's a property tax increase to stabilize funding. He also wants to give his teachers a raise. They start at 30000 but they can earn ten dollars to $15,000 more in nearby Colorado Springs. But Lindauer, he's not ready to throw in the towel on school finance. There's sources out there. We just got to be creative and determined that we're not stuck. And so I constantly lobby on behalf of trying to get the other superintendents to, instead of focusing on poor me, focus on let's do something about our situation. Colorado has not been able to restore school funding to levels before the recession, as you've said. What is Superintendent Lindauer suggesting? Well, he brought up the idea of a commerce tax, like what Nevada just passed. It's a tax on businesses that make over $4 million. But with Colorado's existing Tabor law, you'd have to amass political support to bring it to the voters of Colorado. And since Tabor came into being in 1992, voters have passed just two statewide taxes on tobacco and on pot. Okay, Jenny, thanks for the roundup on the initiatives that some voters will see on their ballots for school funding this year. 
You're welcome. Jenny Brundine is CPR's education reporter. And this conversation is part of her ongoing coverage of school finance in Colorado. When we come back, what AOL co-founder Steve Case was looking for when he came to Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The future of tech startups is not limited to California or New York, but will thrive in places like Denver. That's according to Steve Case, and he knows a few things about entrepreneurship, having co-founded AOL in 1985. Case was just in Colorado as part of a nationwide tour to get acquainted with new companies and choose a few to invest in, which he did here with his firm Revolution LLC. Case told me that right now, the deck is stacked against entrepreneurs who aren't on the coasts. Most of the media attention is on what happens in places like Silicon Valley or New York. And in fact, most of the investor attention is as well. Last year, 75% of venture capital went to just three states. California, New York, and Massachusetts. So the other 47 states, including Colorado, were kind of fighting over the other 25%. We're trying to change that. We're trying to level the playing field. So every entrepreneur everywhere has a shot at the American dream. Uh, Why? What's your personal interest in seeing companies outside of Silicon Valley and the big cities in the Northeast succeed? Well, I think it's important for the country to have a more evenly dispersed innovation economy. I think right now we are at risk because, you know, all our eggs are in a few baskets or most of our eggs in a few baskets. And I just historically that's proven to be a a risk. So we want to make sure that there are opportunities for entrepreneurs everywhere and there's venture capital available to entrepreneurs everywhere. We worked a few years ago with Congress on uh, something called the Jobs Act to legalize crowdfunding, the use of the internet to raise capital. That's a start. But I also think, from a, just a more selfish perspective, investors, including my firm, Revolution, I think have, have the potential to generate better returns if they're investing in these other places because there's so much capital focused on so few places uh, like uh, venture capital in in, uh, in Silicon Valley. The valuation of those companies tend to be bid up sometimes to sort of uh, lofty levels, and those you know, similar companies in other places, the valuations tend to be. You know, more modest. And so I think there's an opportunity for investors to, to recognize that and, and to capitalize on that and in the, in the process help these entrepreneurs in any of these other places build their companies, scale their companies, and also in the process then build up those communities because the startups really are the main creators of jobs and drivers of economic growth in, in our communities. To spread the love, as it were. Uh, the company you invested in in Colorado is uh, from Boulder. It's called Flight Desk. They have a platform to manage advertising on college campuses. And uh, we spoke with the CEO, that's Alex Kronman. He said after your $100,000 investment last week, they actually had a couple of their existing investors give a little more, motivated by you. So it appears to have been catalyzing. But who's to say that other investors besides yourself are going to take notice of these non-coastal companies and help them grow? Well, I think the word's getting out. I think more investors are starting to pay attention to what's happening in the middle of the country, not just on the coast. I think that will accelerate over the next uh, five or ten years. And the, we've done five of these tours so far over the last couple of years, visited 25 cities, and they, they really are showing remarkable momentum in terms of their startup communities. And what happened with, with Flight Desk in, in our Denver Rise of the Rest pitch competition is similar to what we've seen in other cities, that each of the cities, about 100 companies apply to pitch. We pick eight to actually pitch. One is the winner, but all eight get more visibility. And we've, we've heard that most of the 
pitchers, even if they weren't the winners, ended up getting more attention and often more capital than they otherwise would. Have any broken out since your, your stop, or is it too early to say? I think it's a little early because okay. the first uh, first investments we made in this Rise of the Rest initiative were about two years ago, and you know, generally these startup companies take you know, five-plus years before they really develop. But a number of them have you know, raised capital, sometimes significant capital, so they're going from kind of being a startup that not many people had heard of to starting to become more of a speed-up that's starting to gain some momentum. I have no doubt that we'll have some, some big successes in these Rise of the Rest cities. A speed up as opposed to a startup. Um, One of your strategies when you go to cities is, according from your website, to learn from a city's history, as we have found that that can often inform the future and identify core advantages to build on. Uh, I thought that was interesting. What key advantages does, say, Denver or Boulder have that you think entrepreneurs should build on? I think there's quite good momentum in the Denver area, more broadly with Boulder and Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, that whole region, in part because some of the the industries there have been diverse, whether it be telecommunications or energy or healthcare or or aerospace, and in part because over the particularly over the last decade, the startup communities in Boulder and now also in, in Denver and some of the other cities really are rising, and there's a lot of momentum, a lot more capital, but also, frankly, ha- helps to have strong leadership. Uh, we started the morning in, in Denver with uh, Governor Hickenlooper at his uh, Wincoop Brewery, where he was an entrepreneur you know, 30 or so years ago. You know, Mayor Hancock joined us as well, and having you know, the leaders, on, on, on the, whether it be at the state level or the city level, really highlighting the role entrepreneurs play in building the economy, I think, is important. So we left very optimistic about Denver. It clearly has risen over the past decade. I think it will continue to rise over the, the next decade as long as the community continues to rally and to support their, their entrepreneurs. Uh, to this company, Flight Desk, that you invested in uh, in Boulder, Alex Kronman, its CEO, said his business aggregating adver- advertisements onto college campuses is different because of where it's founded, away from the advertising capital of New York City. What we built is what we think makes the most sense. And it's very different than the West, than how the rest of the industry thinks about it. When everybody else is saying, how do we pump dollars into digital channel X? We're saying, how do you reach the right people where they're most engaged? What stood out to you about Flight Desk that maybe other young businesses could learn from? Well, we really love the diversity of the pitches we heard. There are eight different companies, but ultimately Flight Desk, it was a great presentation. It seemed like they had good momentum already. It wasn't just an idea. There was some execution demonstrating that it was, was working, and they really were, were trying to build this marketplace, this platform. We've, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of presentations and pitches over the, over the, over the various uh, Rise of the Rest tours, and this was a unique one, and that's why we decided to pick Flight Desk. When you're deciding whom to invest in, how much of it is based on the idea or the product uh, and how much of it is based on the personalities of the people pitching? I mean, I think of the story of Instagram. The two founders got investment funding and then the focus of the company totally changed. Um, So the investors had to have confidence that those two guys could succeed as much as they had confidence in their idea, you know. Yeah, for us, it's a mix. It starts with the idea in terms of, is it, is it an important idea? Is it going to have impact? Does it have the potential, frankly, to change the world? You know, is it, is it, a, is it a big big vision? But then you quickly move to the team, because you know, we've learned here, and Thomas Edison said this a century ago, that vision without execution is hallucination. So having an idea is important, having a vision is important, but you've got to execute, and that comes down to people and, and, and teams. So getting a sense of the team is, is critical, and also in some initial sense 
that the you know the market is 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 embracing the idea that you know, whether it be through partners or customers or or other kinds of things. And then when we do these pitch competitions, including when we were in Colorado, it, you know, it's it, most of the judges are from the region, so we also have some sense from them of of what's happening in the region, some of the the dynamics, and you know, who, which are the people and ideas that that most make sense to back. Do you get really bad pitches, but that you just realize, oh, the, these guys are smart or their idea is really excellent, but they're not good at, at talking about it? Yeah, occasionally. But when we pick the uh, the, the winners to pitch, uh, yeah, they do get some help in terms of trying to you know, hone their pitches. But sure, there's some who just kind of bomb it and you know, just don't have a good day. And, and uh, we, you know, we understand that goes with the territory. But generally speaking, we've heard hundreds and hundreds of, of pitches. We've really been you know, quite quite impressed by the passion these entrepreneurs bring. Let's talk about diversity in tech, because uh, we recently interviewed a business executive who spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival about Latinos in business. And it's striking that Latinos are starting a lot of businesses proportionate to other groups, and yet they don't go on to have major successes at the same rate. Um, What have you seen that works to help minority-owned businesses take the next step and grow? And, And have you seen them along this tour? We have seen them, but there's you know there's still work to be done there. Frankly, I, I talked earlier about how you know capital generally goes to a few places. It also goes to a relatively small group of of people. That you know, last year, about ninety percent of venture capital went to men, only ten percent to women. About one percent went to African Americans. About one percent went to Latinos. So it, it really the playing field's not level. It does matter where you are, and does matter who you know, and even matters what you look like. And I think that's not a good thing for the country. And we're trying to level the playing field there and make sure opportunity is available to everybody. Actually, last week we launched at the White House, the Case Foundation launched an initiative called Faces of Founders, hashtag Faces of of Founders. And the whole objective there is to try to put a face on entrepreneurship that is more diverse and really try to make sure this next wave of American entrepreneurship is more inclusive, is more uh, diverse. And that starts with, with shining a spotlight on them, helping to tell their stories. It also is helping them connect to other people who could be mentors or customers or, or investors. Uh, we're trying to do everything we can to make sure that everybody has a, has a real shot. And so have you awarded uh, money then to minority-owned businesses? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And the different different uh, you know, cities, I think about half of the people pitching in these different things are have from some kind of diverse background, and many have ended up being the, the winners of our, of our pitch competition. So it's, it's a, ultimately, we're focused on the power of the idea and the potential of the business, but we also do want to lean into this and try to make sure we, we ourselves are trying to do what we can to be more inclusive and really promote a more diverse mix of, of entrepreneurs, which is why we launched this uh, Faces of Founders initiative. Uh, Steve Case, in addition to traveling and investing in tech startups, you have a book out this year. You say the country, maybe the world, is entering the third wave of the Internet. AOL was part of the first wave, Google and Facebook driving the second wave. Uh, Where do you think the opportunities are for people who want to start tech businesses in what you call the third wave? I think they're huge. I mean, the first wave obviously was was important in terms of getting everybody online. Uh, The second wave has been building apps and services on top of the Internet. That's been important. But the third wave really is going to integrate the Internet in much more seamless and pervasive ways, sometimes even invisible ways, throughout our lives. I think in the process really can change in pretty fundamental ways how we stay healthy and how our kids learn and how we move around cities and how we think about energy and transportation and agriculture and food and healthcare and education, pretty big parts of our lives, pretty big sectors of the 
economy that haven't changed all that much in the first wave or the second wave, but are going to change a lot in the third wave. Uh, and also, I think you're going to see many of these entrepreneurs in these rise of the rest cities. I think it's really going to play to the strength of, of these cities that are on the, on the rise because some of the industries that are ripe for disruption, some of the big companies are based in the middle of the country, not on the coast. And as partnerships become more important in the third wave, that's going to advantage the entrepreneurs that are in, in the places that happen to have some expertise about that sector and potential partners. Agriculture, for example, is getting a lot of attention, what they call in Silicon Valley ag tech. They know there'll be great innovations in ag tech and in places like you know Louisville, Kentucky, or or St. Louis, Missouri, or you know Lincoln, Nebraska. These are uh, cities that have a long history of understanding farming and the culture of farming, and can, are likely the ones because they're closer to the problem to see the entrepreneurial opportunity in terms of new new startups. And so I think this third wave will continue to build momentum, and I think as it does, the rest will rise faster, and entrepreneurship will will be broader across the country, and also more inclusive and more diverse across the country. So I'm very optimistic uh, about the future. Agriculture big in Colorado as well. To wrap up, uh, you were on a panel while you were here with Brad Feld, a prominent Boulder investor, and you talked about fear. Uh, Fear is natural, of course, but it can be a huge obstacle to innovation. So I wonder what's your best advice before we go to getting over fear enough, at least, to be successful? Well, I think we launched a campaign at the Case Foundation a few years ago called Be Fearless, and it really is trying to encourage people to to take risk. I mean, the, 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 Babe Ruth was the home run king, but he also was the strikeout king. So sure, if you're going to take risk, if you're going to swing for the fences, sometimes you're going to strike out, but you're, that's the only way you're going to actually hit, hit the home runs. That's the only way you're going to have a have a big impact. So, of course, it's it's scary to to leave a, a company and start your own company, and, and it's risky as well, but that's how we move the country forward. That's how we move the economy forward. So we just need to celebrate the people willing to take that risk and do everything we can, particularly in these rise the rest cities where it tends to be a little bit harder to, to break through, to, to, to try to figure out ways to embrace these entrepreneurs, whether it be as investors or mentors or customers or, or just friends and kind of a, a listening ear and encourage them to be fearless by ourselves, being, being leaning into the future and, and trying to be supportive of their ideas, championing their ideas. And potentially embracing failure, I suppose. Of course, that that's always going to go with the territory. That even some of the, the the companies that ultimately end up being successful, as you mentioned, you know, sometimes it takes a, a pivot or two before they really lock into the right you know product, the right service, the right you know business model. Sometimes revolutions happen in more evolutionary ways. We saw that with AOL. It took us really a decade before anybody paid attention to what we're doing, and we really broke through as a as a business, we just stuck with it, even though we had some difficult days, difficult months, difficult even years. And eventually, yeah, eventually we broke through. I think that mentality around perseverance uh, and being fearless is, is important as we think about this next wave of entrepreneurs and, and, entre- and try to celebrate the entrepreneurs all over the country in these rise of the rest cities that really are trying to kind of you know, build the future and really create the companies of the future. Steve, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Steve Case co-founded a little company called AOL and now runs an investment firm called Revolution LLC. His Rise of the Rest tour highlights entrepreneurship outside Silicon Valley and the major cities in the Northeast. He was in Denver last week. Case's new book is called The Third Wave, an Entrepreneur's Vision of the Future. Coming up, Colorado voters will decide this election whether to raise the state's tobacco tax. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado voters will decide whether to raise sharply the state tobacco tax. A proposed constitutional amendment would more than triple the taxes on a pack of cigarettes. CPR health reporter John Daly spoke to my colleague Mike Lamp. So what is the point of this ballot measure? We're talking about Amendment 72 for those of you keeping track at home. The big headline here, a hike of $1.75 per pack, bringing the total tax on a pack of smokes to two fifty nine. And that's just the tax. And that's just the tax. That's right. The total cost of a pack of cigarettes right now is about five twenty five, something like that. And the primary reason is to keep kids from smoking. The proponents say Colorado kids smoke 7 million packs of cigarettes a year and higher taxes will discourage that. So kids are the focus of this ballot measure. And and does that mean like children, kids or just people who are under 18? I think anybody under 18, but especially teens. And that seems to be the case here, maybe because nearly 10 percent of Colorado kids smoke. Here's Polly Anderson. She's with the campaign for a healthy Colorado, which backs the Yes on 72 campaign. It is one of the proven strategies to reduce youth initiation and help current smokers quit, raising the tobacco tax. The price point, folks are very sensitive to it, and it's incredibly beneficial. A recent Surgeon General's report proves that for every 10 percent, the price of cigarettes goes up, smoking drops 4 percent. Advocates argue this strategy will save lives. Is there a lot of uh, support for uh, Amendment 72, say from state leaders? For instance, Governor Hickenlooper, has he weighed in? Colorado Matters host Ryan Warner asked him about it. The governor said he might have preferred a smaller tax increase, but he likes the idea that it saves lives. But when you're talking about saving 20,000 lives, and the, the estimates are between 20 and 40,000 lives, most of them low-income individuals, in many cases minorities, I think that is something that I also, my conscience would bother me if I didn't support it. That's a lot of people's lives. How does Colorado's cigarette tax rank nationally? Well, according to the CDC, Colorado is in the lower third of states, so our tobacco tax rate is fairly low. If Amendment 72 passes, the state would rank 11th. And who are the uh, opponents to Amendment 72? Not surprisingly, it's big tobacco in the form of a corporation called Altria. That's the Virginia-based tobacco company formerly known as Philip Morris. They've raised $10 million, a lot of that going into ads, making the argument that this isn't good government. Have you heard about Amendment 72? It's a $315 million tax on tobacco that would lock government grant spending programs deep inside our Constitution. When CPR requested an interview, Altria referred us to a local ally, the Libertarian Free Market Independence Institute. It's based in Denver. Here's the group's Mike Krause. Frankly, how many more times do we need to be told that smoking is bad for us? I mean, I've been hearing it my entire life. It's it's right on a pack of cigarettes. So opponents don't like this as policy. Do they argue that it would hurt anybody? Yes, they say it's a regressive tax, meaning it'll hit certain groups the hardest. Again, here's the Independence Institute's Mike Krause. It's a significant, not just a sales tax increase, but a significant tax increase. It triples the tax on tobacco products. All sales taxes hit low-income people the hardest. Now, the other side says low-income people are much more likely to be influenced by price increases. Also, they say the very programs the measure would fund, like smoking prevention programs, would help that same group the most. So if this voter initiative succeeds and the tobacco tax goes up, how much would the state make and where would that money go? 
It'll bring in about $315 million in its first year. Opponents argue the money would be a blank check for special interests. That's right in their ads. And that's misleading. The ballot spells out specific spending priorities. The bulk of the money would go to medical research for cancer prevention, smoking prevention and cessation, and health care for veterans. There has to be a lot of money uh, being spent both in favor and against this ballot measure. Absolutely. Backers of the tobacco tax increase have raised about $1.7 million. That comes from sources like Children's Hospital Colorado, University of Colorado Health, and the American Heart Association. But opponents have raised nearly six times as much money, again, topping $10 million. And all that money is coming from one source, Altria, the tobacco giant. Well, thanks, John. You bet. CPR health reporter John Daly speaking with Mike Lamp. Learn about the many other measures on the statewide ballot at CPRnews.org, where you can find our comprehensive voter guide. And we'll be right back with the story of Asians who thrived in Colorado despite long odds. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. William Way has spent his life living and observing the Asian American experience. He's of Chinese ancestry, and he has seen Asian Americans persevere in what are often hostile environments. He teaches history at the University of Colorado Boulder, and his new book is called Asians in Colorado. Way joins CPR's Andrea Dukakis. William, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me on your show. You immigrated to the U.S. from China with your parents when you were one, and your family settled in New York City. You now live and teach in Colorado. What prompted you to look at the Asian experience from a Western, specifically Colorado perspective? Oh, uh, well, uh, certainly one reason is because I am here. (laughs) And because I am here, I'm naturally interested in uh, Colorado in general, and the people who uh, live in the state. And uh, Asian Americans have been, of course, of uh, both personal and professional interest to me. Yeah. Talk about that, your experience growing up, and what propelled you to to study this issue as well. Yes. uh, As as you know from the uh, prologue of my book, uh, I became interested uh, in... Uh, Asian-Americans because of my family and how we came to America. And uh, that experience, if you will, uh, led me uh, to uh, ask a fundamental question, and that is, what is an American? Uh, One of the uh, stories uh, is from my uh, family's uh, history. Uh, my father uh, was a uh, merchant mariner, and his ship uh, was uh, stranded in New York Harbor on December seventh, nineteen forty-one. And he, uh, yes, he and his entire Chinese crew joined the American Army. And while he was in the army, he uh, attained the rank of sergeant. When he returned to China, where my mother and my older brother were waiting for him, uh, he um, began to talk about America and his experiences. Uh, My father was uh, one of those uh, 
enthusiastic Americans and loved to talk about the country and the experiences that he had. Uh, my mother basically uh, cut short his his long description and asked them a, a real important question, and that was, uh, do they have wars in America? Huh. And my father's response was, no, nah, uh, Americans, uh, they don't fight wars unless it's necessary. <laughs> and my mother, who was living in uh, China, which was experiencing a great deal of turbulence, decided, that's it, we're leaving for America. And the rest is history, so to speak. Um, And in Colorado, I understand the Chinese were the first wave of Asians to come to the state. Um, The first Chinese person to arrive was apparently in 1869. What drew them to Colorado? Oh, uh, they came to uh, Colorado uh, um, for the same reason that most people did. Uh, They were looking uh, to make a living. In the case of the uh, Chinese, uh, they came to make a living so they could support their families that were left behind in China. Uh, in a sense, I can relate to that personally. What, what kind of jobs were they doing? Well, uh, the uh, Chinese, uh, and at least in the beginning, uh, when they first arrived in uh, California, uh, could work in you know, a whole spectrum of occupations until they were basically driven from them. When they arrived in uh, Colorado after having worked on the uh, Transcontinental Railroad and the other railroads in the area, uh, they uh, pursued a number of occupations, but uh, mainly uh, mining. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were involved in, for example, placer mining which was a very labor-intensive type of mining that was avoided by white folks. And you said it's what? A a place of mining. Uh And uh, that's very labor-intensive. It requires that uh, you pan for gold. Mm -hmm. I guess that's perhaps the best way to describe it, as opposed to hydraulic mining, Mm -hmm. where you have to enter the mines and look for uh, mineral resources there. Uh, they did that, but they uh, did other kinds of work as well. Uh, certainly, uh, they occupied uh, what we think of as ethnic type of occupations uh, in Chinatown in Denver, mm-hmm. where they became uh, shopkeepers and also laundrymen, and they opened up restaurants. One of the interesting things about uh, the Chinese experience is that they were forced Uh, into these uh, menial occupations. And then people began to think that they were either culturally or biologically disposed to being cooks Mm -hmm. and being laundrymen. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a a vicious cycle. And you talk about other immigrants to Colorado at the time, like the Italians. Um, And while other immigrants were discriminated against, um, you say the Chinese became... um, victims of ethnic cleansing. Talk about that. Well, let me first of all note uh, that various groups of, uh, well, various groups, immigrant groups, have been subjected uh, to uh, prejudice, uh, discrimination, and also violence. In the case of the Chinese and other Asians, uh, they were uh, victimized because of their race 
and was subject to uh, harassment and violence. In the United States, there were over 200 incidents in which they were basically driven from their homes and their communities. Uh, they were then subsequently excluded uh, from the country. And that was the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. Yes, that is correct. Uh, the Exclusion Act of 1882 uh, has the uh, unfortunate distinction of singling out a specific ethnic group, in this case the Chinese, for exclusion. Japanese immigrants began arriving in the late 1800s to Colorado, and anti-Japanese sentiment replaces anti-Chinese sentiment. Yes. Talk it's, about that. Yes. Uh, it's all part of a general pattern that they had experienced at the time. Uh, first, uh, they are, for a variety of reasons, having to do with being uh, pushed out of their uh, ancestral homes and pulled to the United States uh, to work. Mm-hmm to work uh, because uh, there was a dearth of laborers in the American West. So they come, and then people develop uh, for racial reasons, mainly a dislike for them. So then they are excluded, but the need for workers uh, persists. So then they are uh, pushed out until they can be replaced by yet another group of Asian workers. And hence, uh, after the Chinese uh, were, shall we say, dealt with, they were then replaced uh, by the uh, Japanese uh, to uh, work. Uh, The differences in occupation had much to do with the fact that uh, when the Japanese arrived, uh, they uh, wound up working as migrant laborers. Many of them had been farmers in Japan. That is correct. Uh, They were peasants in Japan. And as a result of the opening of Japan uh, by the United States uh, in 1853, uh, Japan experienced a rather difficult modernization process that drove many of the peasants off the land to the cities and then from the cities overseas to Hawaii, to the West Coast, and then inland to Colorado, which is about as far east as they, as they got. Let's fast forward to World War II. Colorado was home to an internment or concentration camp in southeast Colorado that you can still visit today. Talk about Amache and what it was like for Japanese Americans to be forcibly moved from the West Coast to Colorado. Well, it was, uh, to say the least, a very traumatic experience. Uh, It has, in fact, been compared to being raped, Yeah in which they felt that they were personally violated. Certainly, uh, they ended up losing everything uh, that they had worked an entire lifetime to get. Uh, They were forced to go into the interior to rather harsh uh, places, such as uh, Amachi, which, as you just mentioned, was located uh, in the, um, uh, well... uh, well, in a very desolate place right. you know, near the Kansas border. And it was uh, one of 10 concentration camps in the United States. And uh, though they uh, sometimes said that they placed them there for their protection, as people who went through the experience noted, if they were there for their protection, why were they enclosed by barbed wire 
with towers and guns pointing in rather than out. Uh, this was very, very difficult uh, for the families who were relocated there. Uh, I can't even begin to tell you how uh, traumatic it was. For the young people, uh, it was, uh, well, uh, it was boring. That mm-hmm. was the problem for the young people. Just when they were ready to thrive, uh, they had to languish in, in this uh, concentration camp. Uh, so it was, it was very difficult. It undermined uh, the families that were uh, sent there. Uh. In your book, um, then, you talk about Asian America's greatest generation. Who oh, yes. are you referring to? Well, basically, I'm referring to uh, the uh, Asian Americans, Chinese, Japanese, and others who joined uh, the war against our various Axis enemies. At the uh, same time that uh, Japanese uh, folks were being put, Japanese Americans were being yes. put in uh, concentration camps, folks were joining up and, and serving for the U.S. Yes, so they bore uh, two burdens. One is the burden of having to, of course, uh, fight the, uh, the, the enemies of the United States, you know, and all that that involved. And also they had to bear the uh, burden of, of discrimination, which uh, continued on uh, in the uh, service, uh, the military services that they ended up in. They uh, can be considered uh, the uh, greatest generation because they dealt with both of those, and they did it uh, admirably. Uh, The most uh, well-known Japanese-American unit, as you know, is the 442nd Regimental uh, combat team, which for its size and length of service was the most um, decorated uh, military unit in uh, American history. And um, they suffered uh, tremendous casualties. And they did so uh, in part with the hope that their service would mean something after the war. So it was a bit uh, disillusioning that such a distinguished unit, uh, that the veterans would continue to encounter discrimination upon returning home, including the Colorado. See, the problem they had was uh, people couldn't get beyond their uh, racial uniform. They may have worn a military uniform, mm-hmm. but they couldn't see beyond their race. I just want to uh, wrap up by talking about, uh, you write about Asians as the model minority um, and that stereotype and how it's, it's a burden for, for Asians um, in many cases. Talk about that briefly. Yes, this is one of the many ironies that they have to uh, endure. Uh, they were, <clears throat> you know, discriminated against and uh, now uh, they are singled out as a model to be emulated. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. William Way is a history professor at CU Boulder. He spoke with Andrea Dukakis about his new book, Asians in Colorado. In the Denver area, you pay for museums and theaters, even if you don't buy a ticket. That's because Metro Denver has a cultural tax, and voters decide this year whether to keep it. 
CPR arts reporter Corey Jones has looked at how the revenue was distributed last year, and he spoke with our colleague Bob Lafley. Corey, first of all, how does this tax work? Yeah, Bob. So we're talking about the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, or SCFD, and this covers seven counties in Metro Denver. And this district generates money from a sales and use tax that equals one penny for every $10 spent. Okay, there's a financial audit that comes out at the end of every summer. What did you learn from this? We crunched these numbers from 2015, which tell us how much money went to each organization. Last year, more than $54 million went to around 270 nonprofits. And so I brought some pennies with me today uh, to help explain this. Uh, Here I have one penny. Uh, This one penny represents $1 million that SCFD distributed. And how does that money get split up? There are three different tiers. Let's start with the first tier. These are the five biggest organizations, like the Denver Zoo and Denver Botanic Gardens. And these five groups get the most money. So I have my pennies that represent tier one. So this is the sound of of 35 pennies dropped into a cup. So last year, these five organizations split around $35 million. What about the second tier? Okay, so next we have mid-sized or regional nonprofits. Think the Arvada Center and the Colorado Symphony. There are 28 groups in Tier 2, Bob. Here are those pennies. 11 pennies. So last year, these 28 nonprofits split more than $11 million. And finally, we have the biggest tier. How many groups are in Tier 3? About 240. Uh, These are your small groups like theater companies, pottery guilds, and choirs, and they split the smallest pot of money. Eight pennies. We rounded up to, to $8 million here. Well, we have an idea of how much money each SCFD tier got last year. But I understand the distribution formula may change. Correct. And on this year's election ballot, you'll see the new percentages of funding that will go to each tier. And so if an extension of SCFD passes, a bit more money will go to the second and third tiers. Uh, This change came after some arts leaders for smaller groups made pleas for more funds. In fact, uh, some still think the small and mid-sized groups should get even more than what's proposed. We break down those formulas for you at CPRnews.org. Well, Corey, what else? did you take away from these numbers? Well, just to paint a range, let's look at the biggest and the smallest amounts. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science got the most money from SCFD last year, more than $8.7 million. Again, that's more than all of the third-tier institutions combined. One of those groups, the Mountain Chamber Music Society in Aurora, got the least, $307.50. Science museums and chamber music groups. It sounds like a wide variety of groups that get this SCFD funding. Yeah, it really is. That's one thing that struck me when I went through the list. We often talk about SCFD in terms of traditional arts groups like museums and ballets, but there's a Kung Fu Association in Boulder and Hot Quest in Parker, which handles and teaches about birds of prey. CPR's Corey Jones covers the arts, and he spoke with Bob Lafley. Just a note, CPR and other public media outlets do not get SCFD funding. You can see a list of organizations that do at cprnews.org. We'd like your help on another election year story about people who get along despite their political differences or perhaps struggle to get along. Are you a Clinton supporter in a Trump family or vice versa or a third party voter in a household that only sees two? 
Tell us about your political opposite through our Public Insight Network. That's at cprnews.org. And we'll leave you, as we have all week, with a little something from John Denver. Fans of the late singer-songwriter are in Colorado to celebrate his life. We've asked for your favorite songs of his. Jessica Gates of Monument chose Calypso. To sail on a dream on a crystal clear ocean To ride on the crest of a wild raging storm To work in the service of life and the living in search of the answers to questions unknown To be part of the movement Part of the growing Part of beginning To understand